From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Supreme Court's abortion decision raises questions for fertility doctors and their patients. What is the legal status of eggs fertilized in vitro and of embryos? While the answer is clear in Colorado that IVF can continue, fertility practices here are fielding questions from out of state. Then, psychedelic mushrooms. CPR's Allison Sherry finds moms are quietly microdosing them. Parenting is freaking stressful, and our physiology does not evolve as quickly as our environment. And later, the podcast Music Blocks is back with a focus on stories. Love stories, stories about our work, stories about our home. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Some fertility doctors and patients are in uncharted territory after the reversal of Roe v. Wade. The central question is how the law now treats embryos created in a lab. That picture is clearer in Colorado, where no rights are conferred upon fertilized eggs or embryos. But doctors here are fielding calls from physicians and patients in states where things are cloudier. Dr. Eric Surrey is with the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine in Lone Tree. And Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. Pleasure to join you. Worth noting that in vitro fertilization, IVF didn't exist before Roe v. Wade. How could the Dobbs decision affect fertility care in states where abortions are restricted? I'm thinking, you know, of our neighbors like Oklahoma and Texas. It's a great question that is unanswered. I'll start by saying there's no clear answer because you know, the, the Dobbs decision does nothing specifically for abortion. It, it turns us back to the states. And it really depends how each state addresses this issue. As you very correctly said, for Colorado, you know, embryos are afforded a very a special status but are not persons per se. Um, and you know, the Colorado Building Families Act, which also clearly codifies the legality of IVF in this in this state. And as you know, abortion is protected here. But in other states, it really depends at what stage abortion is made illegal if they're going to do that. So for example, if a state bans abortion after, let's say, six to eight weeks, that would have very little impact on uh, fertility care or in vitro fertilization. But if a state should ratchet that back to claim that uh, you know, pregnancy begins with conception, that would have a major impact on uh, fertility care and, and, and really, I would think, an unintended impact because it will hurt people who are trying to have families. <laughs> are there laws on the books in any states that label the start of the bans at conception, you know of? I am not aware of that, although I do think there is some move afoot. Um, and again, I, I 
I, I can't say this exactly correct, to, in certain states to claim that pregnancy begins at conception. There is a problem with that because how do you define conception? Um, a woman who conceives naturally has no idea when a, a, an egg is fertilized. There's no test for it. There's no way of knowing it. And as, as we know, the, the earliest positive pregnancy test would be two weeks later. So the only person who would know the conception occurs is someone who goes through in vitro fertilization or who knows that fertilization occurs hmm. is going through in vitro fertilization, which kind of creates a two-tiered uh, view of this, which would be, in my view, inherently discriminatory. What are some of the questions that your practice is fielding from perhaps uh, practitioners in other states? Well, there is a lot of anxiety, as you could well imagine. Um, you know, are we even able to practice in our field if if uh, pregnancy is defined at beginning at uh, fertilization? What happens with embryos that have already been formed? Should they be moved? Uh, patients are concerned whether they should move their care to other states that are more friendly to, frankly, fertility care. But there's really been no actual movement, more concern, since the dust has not settled and even these trigger laws are, are very vague on this subject. But it's hard to practice any sort of medicine, I suppose, in a vague legal landscape. You're, it, it, it's uh, very disconcerting for folks. I mean, it, it's highly unlikely this would be whatever law that you can ever assume from politics these days that uh, a law would be retroactive, but it might be. You know, if, if uh, a couple have embryos that are stored that have had a child and want to have another child, embryos are stored at a clinic in a state where this would be of concern, do they move the embryos out? Um, and, and so we have counseled uh, prospective patients and physicians just wait to see how the dust settles mm -hmm. because it will become very clear. And uh, certainly our national organization, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has been very proactive in trying to, to work with legislatures and, and physicians to try to help with this. But it's just such a hodgepodge. It makes it so much more difficult. Uh, an embryo, just to get a bit basic here, is the early developing fertilized egg. And typically, I understand in fertility clinics, you create more than one for a patient to ensure they can ultimately give birth. And you test embryos for genetic conditions, right? And presumably only implant healthy ones. So that's all part of this question, right? All right. There are a couple of answers to your question. An embryo would be defined as a fertilized egg, which would be one day after fertilization mm -hmm. occurs. And um, what's fascinating and maybe a little depressing is that people are not very efficient at reproducing. When we, I, I think in a, in a strong IVF lab, we see that of just the eggs that fertilize, only half will develop for five days later. So a lot of them just stop developing. Um, so they have no potential in resulting in ongoing pregnancy. With regard to genetic testing, it's not something that's always done, but it is an option. And what genetic testing really is, is to look at the chromosomes of an embryo, almost identical to the idea of an amniocentesis later in pregnancy. Oh, yes. So almost think of it as an amniocentesis pre-pregnancy. And there what's fascinating is that the percentage of embryos that are normal, that, that could result in an ongoing pregnancy, 
decreases with age. If we take a 45-year-old woman, maybe, maybe uh, 5 to 6% of embryos that develop are normal. And even in a 30-year-old woman, 75% are normal, which is a good number, but a lot lower than you would anticipate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's helpful insight into how the process works and how uh, questions will loom around that process, perhaps in other states. So uh, you say waiting until the dust settles, would you be prepared to take in, say, embryos from other states or to start seeing patients from other states? Are those conversations happening at your Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine there in Lone Tree? Sure. We're certainly being proactive about this. I think in terms of the latter of taking patients, we already, you know, long before this, have a fairly large uh, patient practice from out of, out of outside of Colorado and internationally. So we're, we're always prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of embryos, it is a little bit different because we are not a storage facility per se. You know, if a patient wants to... Um, is a, is a patient elsewhere and wants to join our practice, we're happy to accept their embryos. That's not a problem. But there are facilities that specifically do uh, uh, storage you know, in, in other states that are commercial entities that will store mm. you know, eggs or sperm or embryos for long term. And, and this has been going on for a while because a lot of clinics just don't have the capacity to safely keep embryos for long term. So they are stored off-site. And that certainly could be an option uh, for a couple that are, or individual that's concerned about the state that they're living in if the facility is in a, how shall I put it, friendly state. Um, that would, would not require their changing their physician, but just moving the embryos elsewhere to feel comfortable. Before we go, are, are doctors afraid in other states? I, I don't want to instill fear. I think... Uh, our mission more is to inform and perhaps inform the conversation right. that happens around laws in those states. But is there some fear? I, I think just concern and anxiety might be a little bit better than fear. But it, it does lead with if, if bans are very strict. And you know, as you know, we had dealt with a personhood amendment here. It was roundly defeated several times. But if that sort of thing does go into place elsewhere, it would be impossible to practice in this field. Uh, and, and frankly, would have major implications for just care of complications of pregnancy. Um, it's just terrifying to think of a woman with a ectopic pregnancy who could die if she doesn't undergo surgery. But, you know, there's, there's a pregnancy there. What do you do? Um, so, to... yes, there is a lot of anxiety. Thank you so much for your, your time and insight. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for letting me join you. Dr. Eric Suri, reproductive endocrinologist with the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine in Lone Tree, and we talked about fertility treatment post-Roe. Abortion access is a flashpoint in Colorado's U.S. Senate race between Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett and Republican Joe O'Day. CPR's Ben to Berkland reports. Senator Bennett's campaign's first attack ad against O'Day targets his stance on abortion. It highlights five women lamenting the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. But Joe O'Day opposes the law protecting abortion access in Colorado. And O'Day would have voted to confirm Trump's Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. While O'Day doesn't back Colorado's law with no restrictions on when abortions can be performed, he does support abortion access earlier in pregnancy and for the health of the mother and in instances of rape or incest. 
O'Day does not back the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. You can hear both Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day answer questions about abortion access in interviews with Colorado Matters at CPR.org. When we come back, moms on mushrooms. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Growing up, May Ortega thought that she had a pretty good idea of who she was. But when she became a journalist, she realized that to report on other people, she had to figure out her own story. In first grade, we noticed that everything was in English. So sometimes like they would slap the back of your hand with rulers if you were speaking Spanish when they would tell you not to. You can find the newest episode of Quien Are We? everywhere you listen to podcasts. Moms in Colorado, hundreds of them, are furtively taking tiny amounts of psychedelic mushrooms. During the pandemic, they have eased the difficulty of homeschooling and looming illness. But experts warn there's no data on how the mushrooms affect the brain. CPR's Alice and Sherry talked with a number of moms across the state. Yeah, that looks good. You want it to be a little... Here, I can just... We'll just go really, really fast. We'll get all those lumps out. Ariel lives in Thornton with her four kids, and they're making apple German pancakes this sultry weekday, just a few days before the first day of school. So this is just eggs, milk, a little bit of salt, and like a tablespoon of sugar. So there's not a whole lot. And then over here is just... Ariel is one of hundreds of mothers across Colorado who regularly microdoses psychedelic mushrooms to ease anxiety sparked by a rough divorce amid the pandemic. We are only using her first name because possession of psilocybin mushrooms is still largely illegal, and she wants to protect her family. You know, I'm in the process of making dinner, and I forgot to send out an email, and I'm trying to schedule appointments for the next day, and my kids are fighting or screaming, but I've noticed that when I have taken that, that that time to get in the right headspace in the beginning of the day, I have the energy that I need at the end of the day to take care of my everyday needs. This burgeoning mommy microdosing movement has support groups, churches, and social media followings. Some moms microdose and do yoga or journal or watch a Disney movie with their kids. Courtney has a big job in the cannabis industry and has a two and a five-year-old in a western suburb. She says microdosing gives her a small but crucial boost. You're 10% more patient, 10% more joyful, maybe 10% more willing to play and roll around in the grass that with your kids, maybe when you weren't before. And, and 10% goes a pretty long way. Research is ongoing across the world on the benefits of psilocybin among people with treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Numerous studies have found that it helps those problems, as well as smoking and alcohol addiction, anxiety for terminally ill patients, and even anorexia. The FDA has actually granted it breakthrough therapy status. All that said, less is known about microdosing. Uh, you know, people who are using, who are microdosing, what I would say is that they're basically experimenting on themselves. That's Dr. Josh Woolley, a psychiatry professor at the University of California, San Francisco. He is currently overseeing a psilocybin clinical trial among healthy adults. You know, it's not so dangerous that it would be so obvious, but we really don't have good epidemiological studies sort of saying, like, are, are there any bad outcomes? Are there good outcomes? So there's still a lot of work to be done. The notion that moms need some outside substance to get through their days has been around for generations. 
From Mommy's Little Helper, a Rolling Stones song about Valium. This includes martini lunches to the current versions, which can include Mommy's Sippy Cups and Mama Needs Wine t-shirts in gift stores. Dr. Neil Epperson is the chair of psychiatry at the University of Colorado Medical School at Anschutz. You know, my generation was the Chardonnay generation. (laughs) Epperson is known internationally for her work in studying women's mental health. She draws a pretty big distinction between motherhood distress and an actual diagnosed mental illness. She says those two things are not the same and shouldn't be treated that way. But she does empathize with mothers today. So even if you don't have a psychiatric illness as an adult, parenting is freaking stressful. (laughs) It just is. I mean, we have created a very stressful world for everyone. And our physiology does not evolve as quickly as our environment has evolved. Add to that the pandemic, and some moms told me they were in full-blown meltdown modes in 2020 and 2021. Microdosing mushrooms is different than taking a large dose and then having a trip. Most of the moms take between 0.1 and 0.3 milligrams in increments, like three days on and three days off. On a day-to-day basis, a small capsule of dried-up powder doesn't even register a buzz. But over time, the moms say they swear by how different they feel. Um, So my name is Tracy T. I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm actually a fourth-generation Colorado native. I have one daughter. She's 11. And I am the steward of Moms on Mushrooms, which is a community Um, Tracy T. was a critically acclaimed comedian and ran a motherhood-oriented live show called Pump and Dump that had to cancel 75 cities in March 2020. She eventually lost the whole business during the pandemic and was also struggling with parenting, watching her daughter home all the time doing online school. T. took an online course on microdosing, and she said the mushrooms, which she calls her medicine, changed her life. One is I felt like I had space between my thoughts. I am a very big reactive person, and I felt like my reactivity kind of just softened. The other interesting thing is that everything comes to the surface, that your head and your hearts and your whole physical body are actually just finally coming online and actually listening to each other. But in T's quest to talk to others going through similar experiences, she noticed a gaping hole in the discourse. She wanted to talk to other moms also doing this. So she created a company called Moms, Moms on Mushrooms, and now leads courses. Motherhood healing is different from other kinds of healing, she says. It's done between ballet practice and doctor's appointments and soccer, you know? We don't get the luxury of just flying off to the Amazon rainforest for a month and doing ceremony after ceremony, and we don't get to go to Bali for two weeks and do yoga and eat fruit. That motherhood is hard, sometimes isolating and emotionally exhausting, is definitely not new. But the communities T and several other women have created in sharing their day-to-day stories, as well as their microdosing experiences, is perhaps an acknowledgement that trying to find help can work, even if that help looks, tastes, and feels different than in generations before. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And though she's
An initiative to legalize psilocybin in Colorado is on the November ballot. It's called the Natural Medicine Health Act. It would decriminalize psychedelic mushrooms and allow psilocybin to be administered in state-regulated settings. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a novel way to bring music into the classroom or the living room. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. It's back to school, which means it can also be back to music. Music Blocks is CPR's podcast exploring how songwriters and composers use sound to express emotion and how kiddos can tap into their own feelings. It was developed to spur classroom discussion with middle and high schoolers in mind, but even 40-somethings like myself find joy in this, as do hosts and producers Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez, who just launched the second season. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good hey, to be good here. to be here. Uh, Rebecca, this season is about musical storytelling. Where are you taking listeners with that focus? So we decided to focus on storytelling this season because that's what we heard from Colorado music educators who are a large part of the development of this show. And they told us it was just a really approachable way to talk about music. And we have definitely found that to be true. <laughs> And we're working on shows that focus on love stories, stories about our work, stories about our home, all kinds of things that really make up the stories of our lives. Mm. Why, why does country music immediately spring to mind? Was that, was that a starting point? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. There's a lot of genres that you think about with storytelling, right? Uh-huh. Uh, country folk, music, folk, hip hop. There's uh, Storytelling is an essential part of a lot of genres. It is a daunting thing, even to zero in on something like storytelling, Luis, and then come up with a set number of songs and artists and genres and cultures and <laughs> right. places. Right, right. Yeah. And that's part of the goal for the, the, the show as well. You know, it's always been about, um, you know, although country music might come to your mind first, I mean, the planet, the entire planet has been telling stories through music for a long time. I mean, we're talking about the entirety of human existence. Yeah, right. right. So we, um, so it's a, there's a big, a big part of uh, choosing which songs are going to be in each episode is about casting a really wide net and hopefully revealing different cultures and how different cultures use music and stories together. Yes, and getting beyond yourself and your own tastes. Hmm. Each episode is about five minutes. Uh, The idea is that it can be easily incorporated into a classroom discussion or maybe family time outside of school. Luis, what have you learned in the process of producing the podcast? Music is like the soundtrack of our lives, you know? Like we all have like music that we think about when we're thinking about our families or we're thinking about when we're falling in love or when we're thinking about special moments in our lives and just how universal that is, you know? Uh, If someone plays for me, a song from their culture that is uh, that means something in a moment in their lives, I can feel that without ever having experienced that particular thing because oh. it exists for me too in some other way. 
Oh, that's interesting. Music, I think of as transporting, but mm. I love how you talk about it transporting you into someone else's experience. Absolutely. Okay. And if I could add, the, of course, <laughs> the storytelling aspect of this season certainly taps into that. It's all about connecting with different cultures and understanding experiences that aren't yours or tapping into it, like feeling seen in an experience that you hear in a song mm. is so powerful. Well, why don't we share the season two premiere Rebecca, you want to set it up for us? Yes. So our premiere is all about love stories and all of the different ways that you can express love and, and what right, that means. Right. That's just romantic, right? Correct. This is Music Blocks, a podcast about the building blocks that make up your favorite sounds, whatever you love to listen to. Love might just be the number one subject for songwriters. And musicians often take inspiration from classic love stories. Taylor Swift did this with her hit song, Love Story. She describes a love at first sight situation. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. But then she sings about how things are a little bit more complicated. Just like in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The drums kick in, the pace picks up, and then we learn that this love story has a triumphant ending. Almost like fireworks going off. Today on Music Blocks, the power of love comes in many different forms. We're going to hear how musicians express stories of love using powerful singing with long phrases, gentle sounds, and lovey lyrics. Imagine a time in the distant past with kings and queens. A beautiful princess issues an unusual challenge. Any prince who wants to marry her must correctly answer three riddles. If he fails, he dies. This is the story that sets up Italian composer Giacomo Puccini's opera, Turandot. When opera goers hear this song, a prince who fell in love with the princess is desperately trying to win her over. The song is filled with longing. But the prince is also confident, which you can hear in the way he sings. The performer stretches out each lyric as the music builds and builds. He accents each syllable to sing Vincero, or I will win. People in Korea have mixed stories and music for hundreds of years through a type of performance called a pansori. And a pansori, an expressive vocalist, tells a story 
with a percussionist who accents the words. This performance tells a love story. The two lovers are getting to know each other. They give each other piggyback rides. Yes, piggyback rides. And talk about what to eat. Melons or cherries, grapes or candies. The lyrics are simple but intimate. And this performance is rhythmic and vibrant. Some songwriters tell stories about more mature relationships. Mexico's José Alfredo Jiménez is famous for his rancheras. These are emotional songs that usually have poetic lyrics about love. This one is called Amanecí en tus brazos, or I woke up in your arms. Jiménez describes the scene of waking up in the arms of the person he loves. He's so happy, he woke up crying. The music that accompanies the singer is quiet and slow, just like the morning he describes. Of course, not all love is romantic. One of the most universal types of love songs is about a caregiver comforting a child. I'm guessing you've heard plenty of lullabies. This one is Tula Baba, a popular Zulu lullaby from South Africa. The song tells a simple but powerful story. A mother reassures her child that the bright stars above will help guide the baby's father home. This music is gentle and has a steady tempo. It's perfect for rocking a baby to sleep. Music can connect loved ones, or enhance and even elevate the way we express love. This episode of Music Blocks is almost over. So take a minute and think about love stories you connect with. How would you express those stories through music? Would you write intimate lyrics? Maybe you'd compose a sweeping melody. When you've thought that through, visit our website for a playlist of musical love stories to make you swoon. That's at musicblockspodcast.org. For Music Blocks and Colorado Public Radio, I'm Luis Antonio Perez. What room is there for love in a classroom? Have you thought about that? Well, I haven't thought about that, but now that you're asking me about it, I'm thinking <laughs> about it. You know, I think lo- love is, oh man, I don't want to get too deep and philosophical here. You why know, not? Why, but like, well, that's why we asked you. Lo- love, love, I feel like love, this is Luis's just opinion about what love is, <laughs> is a, as an emotion that you sort of don't need to learn how to feel, like how to experience. You know, you just do, just like you just kind of know how to smile. Like, you know, kids know how to smile. They know how to laugh. They know how to feel. I feel like love is the same way. And I don't know, for me, I don't know about everybody else, but like the purest form of love is when you're young. You know, you love your parents. You love your family. You love 
apples or ice cream or pizza or tacos or whatever it is. Yes, love you, is so intense. And in you that can age. have such deep feelings for these things that you, know, you may not realize it at the time, but will become like important parts of your life going forward. So love is just this universal thing that we can attribute, uh, I think, easier when we're kids. What were you in love with as a kid, Rebecca? And have you outgrown it? <laughs> Ooh, I love that question. I love that question about what I was in love with. <laughs> um, I feel like kind of going back to what Luis was saying, it's so easy to fall in love with things when you're a kid. And so I think about I was on swim team. I loved swimming. <laughs> I remember how long I spent in pools as a kid. Yes, I, I lived at the pool in the summertime. I spent more time at that pool than I did with my parents. It was the best. <laughs> No, no knocks against my parents, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, there is another episode, uh, f- fascinating, about work. Um, what kind of work stories do musicians tell? There's a lot of different stories about work, right? It's something that everybody experiences at some point. Even the students who are listening to these podcast episodes, like they're putting in work in school. Yeah, homework. Right. Mm. And so sometimes we love our jobs and sometimes we really don't like our jobs very much. And... So we've found stories about that. There's also stories that connect to what it's like to work. A lot of the work songs that exist are about coordinating labor, about helping each other uh, get through kind of a boring task, but also like coordinating it so that you can all do it together. Oh, so really like songs about cooperation? What's an example? There's a really interesting song that we found that's about coordinating rowing on a river from China. People have used music as a part of manual labor for a long time. Singing made some repetitive work a little less boring, but it also helped people coordinate their tasks. When Chinese workers had to row boats to deliver goods up and down the Zhaoling River, they sang this folk song. It uses call and response. A leader sings out, and the boatmen respond in a rhythmic, almost hypnotic way to coordinate their rowing. This music tells the listener a story about what it's like to work on that river and how that work comes together. That's the boatman's song on the Zhaoling River. Boatman's song. I, I can imagine the discussions pouring forth mainly from the teacher about cooperation in the classroom after listening to something like that. Luis, is there a favorite song you use in this new season? Yeah, I really love uh, the song Bong Bong Bang Bang from Nick and Stella Chung. Because it's a, there's a story associated with it. You know, the Chinese New Year, uh, there's a tradition of blowing off fireworks and making a bunch of noise because there's this myth around a monster that will emerge unless you make a whole bunch of noise. And the, the song just, uh, it's like this big, rowdy, celebratory song that kind of uh, encapsulates that big, happy, loud music making. <laughs>
Luis, as a listener, I start to draw my own connections then to the music. Because in the Jewish tradition, at Purim, we make loud noises as part of that tradition. How nice to be able to draw that line from China to wherever Jews, you know, may be. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I just want to say that in the off season, uh, Music Blocks got a very special honor. You won Best Podcast for Kids at awards called the Ambies. It's kind of like the Oscars for podcasting. What was it like when the team heard that news? It was pretty amazing, actually, because, you know, we're sort of this, you know, just this modest team here in Colorado making a podcast for Colorado educators and kids. And to get national recognition is just so humbling for us, you know, to this little thing that we made that we hope uh, parents and teachers can use in classrooms and at home is getting this, it's just getting huge recognition. And it's really amazing. Oh, Rebecca, what was your reaction? Well, it was really exciting because we were up against operations like Netflix, like really big production, like powerhouses. And so like Louise said, like for our team, which is small and and dedicated to making content really for like local audiences, it just it felt really special to get that that level of recognition. I have always admired you more than Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both for being with us. Congratulations. Thank Thank you, Ryan. Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez host and produce Music Blocks, a music appreciation podcast from CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. You can listen to Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts and always at CPR.org. When we come back, Shakespeare goes wild. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Once upon a time, Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s, there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. In 1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A.V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954, orchards were neglected. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state, and Colorado's cherry industry faded. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. A Midsummer Night's Dream lives up to its name this weekend. Centennial's Shakespeare in the Wild takes the show outdoors. Let's join CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. Just off the walking path in the open space behind the Goodson Rec Center in Centennial, a merry band of actors are rehearsing. They are preparing to make their dream come true of presenting Shakespeare outdoors for free. Lee Miller came up with the idea while on a run on the Highline Canal path. And I have run there for the last decade. We've lived in our house for 11 years. And for 11 years, 
I, on a monthly basis, would tell my wife, they really should do Shakespeare down there. That's such a great space. It's so pretty. It's so beautiful. Let's do, somebody should do Shakespeare. Then, about three years ago, Miller called the executive director of South Suburban Parks and Recreation and made his pitch. I want to do Shakespeare in your space. What, what do I have to do to do that? And it was a pretty difficult conversation because he just started with yes. And that was, <laughs> and then we just kept going. I was expecting more pushback, but he said, we would love that, please. So you had a much easier go of it than Joseph Papp did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The road in between, the road in between has been difficult, but I will never claim to have that kind of difficult road. The original plan was to open a production of The Tempest in June 2020. But after the pandemic difficulties of the past two years, Miller and artistic director Sam Gregory decided to present one of Shakespeare's most beloved comedies instead, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And the company of actors agreed. Sam Gregory. I have to tell you that uh, Midsummer Night's Dream was the first play I ever did, and it it, it sent me on the course of a, a 35-year career in the theater. I love the play, and my whole concept is is dictated by our budget, which is virtually no money. So the concept is everything comes out of a box that you'll see on stage. People pull out their their costumes and things and put on pieces and, and launch into it. Uh, the other idea is that the play never stops. In other words, as soon as the the, the last word of the last scene is spoken, the next word of the next scene is spoken, so that you, the text continues on, even if actors aren't fully in costume yet, so that no matter what happens, the play keeps going. After the pandemic, it became abundantly clear that, we, that I wanted to do something with my community in which I had artistic collaborators. This is a place for artists to come and work with people they love or they enjoy, that they want to be part of. Community and collaboration are sentiments repeated by the actors in between rehearsing their scenes. Chelsea Fry plays Peter Quince and Cobweb. It's magical because Midsummer Night's Dream touches anybody, even people that are not the biggest Shakespeare fans. You go, what Shakespeare play do you like? And it never fails that they say Midsummer because... This touches everybody. It's fun. It's got fairies. It's got love. It's got mischief. And who doesn't love summer and a giant, beautiful, full-belly moon? It's beautiful. Lysander is played by Grant Bowman. I mean, for me, the big draw was like a lot of the people that are involved because there are lots of actors who have had, I mean, so like such a great career like in this city and beyond. I mean, throughout the U.S. doing all different kinds of work. Iliana Lucero Baron plays Hermia. I echo what Grant said. It's the people and then getting to work with people who I already work with in Shakespeare in the parking lot because myself, Grant, and um, our Helena, Shannon Altner, um, we've always had great chemistry on stage. And it's just nice to get to do the full incarnation of Midsummer because for Shakespeare in the parking lot, we do the 45-minute rendition. So it's nice to actually get to know my character in a more full-fledged version. Leslie O'Carroll was originally slated to play Bottom, but she has another show starting rehearsals, so her husband, Steve Wilson, stepped in instead. I love the play so much, and I played Bottom hmm, 20 years ago. Um, One of the very select few roles I just love to do again because it's so fun. And it's great company, Sam Gregory, Lee, it's just been amazing. And this wasn't the first time Wilson has taken over a role for his wife. They once swapped in Tartuffe, a play by Moliere. The theater's a crazy place, but I had never heard of a husband understudying a wife and playing the same role. 
The Midsummer cast is a mix of union and non-union actors, which isn't unusual in Colorado, but the post-pandemic spirit, Miller says, is different. I think I would be pretty arrogant to say that the pandemic didn't change a lot. Uh, As an artist, especially a theater artist who has spent my entire professional career in the theater, to watch all of that evaporate and watch my community struggle and watch jobs disappear, that impact of watching our lives stop ostensibly and changing the, the motive to be with other artists, that's the change. It, it has been profound in so many ways for so many people. My wife is not in the theater at all. And to watch her life and the way that she sees her work change, the theater, I think, is best is, is now ready to say we can now approach art as artists in a different way because we've seen the world without it. And, and that's really what Shakespeare in the Wild is trying to provide a home for artists that can say, I have something to say to, them, to my community through Shakespeare, hopefully. Director Sam Gregory. It's really about joy. I wake up every morning and I read the paper and what's missing in our world so much is just joy. And I know that this is something this play can deliver. And I knew that I had the ability to bring out the joy in this play. The company of Shakespeare in the Wild invites everyone to bring blankets, a picnic, a lawn chair, even a bottle of wine, and see what can happen when some really talented people put their hearts and souls into something. And now, A Midsummer Night's Dream, brought to you by... Shakespeare in the Wild! I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. And you can see A Midsummer Night's Dream from Shakespeare in the Wild this weekend and next. The free performances take place in the evenings near the Goodson Recreation Center in Centennial. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We have our next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in his new book, Tracing Time. I see rock art like deeds to the land, whose signatures are the oldest. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Images of spirit figures and animals, depictions of battles, births, hunts, ceremonies, or geometric lines etched into stone. This land was claimed a long time ago, and you can read it right there on the rock. Tracing Time celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Childs weaves in his conversations with elders, scholars, and friends. Pick up a copy and join me and Craig Childs September 6th in Grand Junction. We'll talk about the book and answer your questions. We'd love to see our friends in Delta, Debec, Cedar Edge, Loma. Free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tracing Time, by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. Okay, finally today, Boulder County singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff is getting the band back together. And by band, I mean the Colorado Symphony. 
This weekend marks their first collaboration since 2017 when they released an album of orchestral arrangements of Isakoff's songs. He has since performed with several symphony orchestras across the country. We asked him how much rehearsal time goes into these collabs. Turns out, very little when you're working with a bunch of pros. They sight-read. You know, we have one kind of run-through before the show, and then they just play it perfectly. (laughs) It's kind of mind-blowing to me. You know, the band and I, we play songs differently every night because we've just been playing so long together. And so we'll vamp like an intro, depending on how we're feeling. But, you know, but when we're following the scores, you have to be like, all right, four rounds and then vocals come in or else it's a kind of a train wreck because everyone's reading music. But we'll meet with the conductor and be like, hey, we like to vamp this a little longer and he'll just make a note and I'll say no problem. So we've been able to be a little more brave and musical um, every time we meet with the conductors, whatever symphony we're working with. And it's become really fun. Remember when our songs are just like prayers Like gospel hymns that you called in the air Come down, come down, sweet reverence Unto my simple house and rain And rain There's this kind of like immersed, swelling loss of time that happens where you're like oh i think we'll make it but i don't know where we're at right now and then it all comes together and so like there's like these kind of moments where you're just kind of holding on you know and you're like i hope this works out and it always does somehow watch the world spinning waves like some I've been crazy, couldn't you tell? Through stones at the stars, but the whole sky fell. Now I'm covered up in straw, belly up on the table. And I drank and sang and passed in the stable. Oh, oh, oh. Gregory Allen Isakoff reunites with the Colorado Symphony this weekend for a pair of sold-out shows at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these first chair producers. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Oh, now I know.